Question 37 of Summa Theologica Tertia Pars, Treatise on the Saviour. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica Tertia Pars, Treatise on the Saviour, by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 37. Of Christ's circumcision and of the other legal observances accomplished in regard to the child Christ. In four articles. We must now consider Christ's circumcision. And since the circumcision is a kind of profession of observing the law, according to Galatians 5.3, I testify to every man circumcising himself that he is a debtor to do the whole law. We shall have, at the same time, to inquire about other legal observances accomplished in regard to the child Christ. Therefore, there are four points of inquiry. First, his circumcision. Second, the imposition of his name. Third, his presentation. Fourth, his mother's purification. First article, whether Christ should have been circumcised. Objection one. It seems that Christ should not have been circumcised. For on the advent of the reality, the figure ceases. But circumcision was prescribed to Abraham as a sign of the covenant concerning his posterity as may be seen from Genesis 17. Now this covenant was fulfilled in Christ's birth. Therefore, circumcision should have ceased at once. Objection to further. Every action of Christ is a lesson to us, as Pope Innocent said in a homily. Wherefore it is written in John 3.15, I have given you an example, that as I have done to you, so you do also. But we ought not to be circumcised, according to Galatians 5.2. If you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Therefore, it seems that neither should Christ have been circumcised. Objection 3 further. Circumcision was prescribed as a remedy of original sin. But Christ did not contract original sin, as stated above in question 14, article 3, and in question 15, article 1. Therefore, Christ should not have been circumcised. On the contrary, it is written in Luke 2.21, after eight days were accomplished, that the child should be circumcised. I answer that, for several reasons, Christ ought to have been circumcised. First, in order to prove the reality of his human nature, in contradiction to the Manichaeans who said that he had an imaginary body, and in contradiction to Apollonarius, who said that Christ's body was consubstantial with his Godhead, and in contradiction to Valentine, who said that Christ brought his body from heaven. Secondly, in order to show his approval of circumcision, which God had instituted of old. Thirdly, 
in order to prove that he was descended from Abraham, who had received the commandment of circumcision as a sign of his faith in him. Fourthly, in order to take away from the Jews an excuse for not receiving him if he were uncircumcised. Fifthly, in order by his example to exhort us to be obedient, as Bede says in a homily on the gospel. Wherefore, he was circumcised on the eighth day according to the prescription of the law. Confer Leviticus 12.3. Sixthly, that he who had come into the world in the likeness of sinful flesh might not reject the remedy whereby sinful flesh was wont to be healed. Seventhly, that by taking on himself the burden of the law, he might set others free therefrom, according to Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. God sent his Son, made under the law, that he might redeem them who were under the law. Reply to Objection 1. Circumcision, by the removal of the piece of skin in the member of generation, signified the passing away of the old generation, according to Athanasius, from the decrepitude of which we are freed by Christ's passion. Consequently, this figure was not completely fulfilled in Christ's birth, but in his passion, until which time the circumcision retained its virtue and status. Therefore it behooved Christ to be circumcised as a son of Abraham before his passion. Reply to Objection 2. Christ submitted to circumcision while it was yet of obligation, and thus his action in this should be imitated by us in fulfilling those things which are of obligation in our own time. Because there is a time and opportunity for every business, according to Ecclesiasticus 8.6. Moreover, according to Origen, in one of his homilies on the Gospel of Luke, as we died when he died, and rose again when Christ rose from the dead, so were we circumcised spiritually through Christ. Wherefore, we need no carnal circumcision. And this is what the Apostle says in Colossians 2.11, In whom, that is Christ, you are circumcised, and with circumcision not made by hand in despoiling of the body of the flesh, but in the circumcision of our Lord Jesus Christ. Reply to Objection 3. As Christ voluntarily took upon himself our death, which is the effect of sin, whereas he had no sin in himself, in order to deliver us from death, and to make us die spiritually unto sin, so also he took upon himself circumcision, which was a remedy against original sin, whereas he contracted no original sin, in order to deliver us from the yoke of the law, and to accomplish a spiritual circumcision in us, in order, that is to say, that by taking upon himself the shadow, he might accomplish the reality. Second article. Whether his name was suitably given to Christ. Objection 1. It would seem that an unsuitable name was given to Christ. For the gospel reality should correspond to the prophetic foretelling. But the prophets foretold another name for Christ, for it is written in Isaiah 7.14, 
Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. And in Isaiah 8.3, Call his name, hasten to take away the spoils, make haste to take away the prey. And in Isaiah 9.6, His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, God the Mighty, the Father of the world to come, the Prince of Peace. And in Zechariah 6.12, Behold a man, the Orient is his name. Thus it was unsuitable that his name should be called Jesus. Objection to further. It is written in Isaiah 62 verse 2, Thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord hath named. But the name Jesus is not a new name, but was given to several in the Old Testament, as may be seen in the genealogy of Christ, confer Luke 3.29. Therefore, it seems that it was unfitting for his name to be called Jesus. Objection 3 further. The name Jesus signifies salvation, as is clear from Matthew one twenty one. She shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. But salvation through Christ was accomplished not only in the circumcision, but also in uncircumcision, as is declared by the Apostle in Romans 4, verses 11 and 12. Therefore, this name was not suitably given to Christ at his circumcision. On the contrary is the authority of Scripture, in which it is written, in Luke 2.21, After eight days were accomplished, that the child should be circumcised. His name was called Jesus. I answer that. A name should answer to the nature of a thing. This is clear in the names of genera and species, as stated in Metaphysics 4. Since a name is but an expression of the definition, which designates a thing's proper nature. Now the names of individual men are always taken from some property of the men to whom they are given, either in regard to time, thus men are named after the saints on whose feast days they are born, or in respect of some blood relation, thus a son is named after his father or some other relation, and thus the kinsfolk of John the Baptist wished to call him by his father's name Zachary, not by the name of John, because there was none of his kindred that was called by this name, as is related in Luke 1, verses 59 through 61. Or again, from some occurrence. Thus Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manassas, saying, God hath made me to forget all my labors. Confer Genesis 41, 51. Or again, from some quality of the person who receives the name. Thus it is written in Genesis 25.25 that He that came forth first was red and hairy like a skin, and his name was called Esau, which is interpreted red. But names given to men by God always signify some gratuitous gift bestowed on them by him. Thus it was said to Abraham in Genesis 17.5, Thou shalt be called Abraham, because I have made thee a father of many nations. And it was said to Peter in Matthew 16.18, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. 
since therefore this prerogative of grace was bestowed on the man christ that through him all men might be saved therefore he was becomingly named jesus that is savior the angel having foretold this name not only to his mother but also to joseph who was to be his foster father reply to objection one all these names in some way mean the same as jesus which means salvation for the name emmanuel which being interpreted is god with us designates the cause of salvation which is the union of the divine and human natures in the person of the son of god the result of which union was that god is with us when it was said call his name hasten to take away etc these words indicate from what he saved us notably from the devil whose spoils he took away according to colossians two fifteen despoiling the principalities and powers he hath exposed them confidently when it was said his name shall be called wonderful etc the way and term of our salvation are pointed out inasmuch as by the wonderful counsel and might of the godhead we are brought to the inheritance of the life to come in which the children of god will enjoy perfect peace under god their prince when it was said behold a man the orient is his name reference is made to the same as in the first notably to the mystery of the incarnation by reason of which to the righteous a light is risen up in darkness as is stated in psalm 111 verse 4 reply to objection to the name jesus could be suitable for some other reason to those who lived before christ for instance because they were saviors in a particular and temporal sense. But in the sense of spiritual and universal salvation, this name is proper to Christ, and thus it is called a new name. Reply to Objection 3 As is related in Genesis 17, Abraham received from God, and at the same time, both his name and the commandment of circumcision. For this reason, it was customary among the Jews to name children on the very day of circumcision, as though before being circumcised they had not as yet perfect existence. Just as now also children receive their names in baptism. Wherefore, on Proverbs 4.3, I was my father's son, tender, and as an only son in the sight of my mother. The gloss says, Why does Solomon call himself an only son in the sight of his mother, when scripture testifies that he had an elder brother of the same mother unless it be that the latter died unnamed soon after birth therefore it was that christ received his name at the time of his circumcision third article whether christ was becomingly presented in the temple objection one it would seem that Christ was unbecomingly presented in the temple, for it is written in Exodus 13:2, Sanctify unto me every firstborn that openeth the womb among the children of Israel. But Christ came forth from the closed womb of the virgin, and thus he did not open his mother's womb. Therefore, 
Christ was not bound by this law to be presented in the temple. Objection to further, that which is always in one's presence cannot be presented to one, but Christ's humanity was always in God's presence in the highest degree, as being always united to him in unity of person. Therefore, there was no need for him to be presented to the Lord. Objection three further. Christ is the principal victim, to whom all the victims of the old law are referred as the figure to the reality. But a victim should not be offered up for a victim. Therefore, it was not fitting that another victim should be offered up for Christ. Objection four. Further, among the legal victims, the principal was the lamb, which was a continual sacrifice, as is stated in Numbers 28.6, for which reason Christ is also called the Lamb, behold the Lamb of God, as is stated in John 1.29. It was therefore more fitting that a lamb should be offered for Christ than a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. On the contrary, is the authority of Scripture which relates this as having taken place, in Luke 22, verse 22. I answer that, as stated above in Article 1, Christ wished to be made under the law that he might redeem them who were under the law, as stated in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, and that the justification of the law might be spiritually fulfilled in his members. Now the law contained a twofold precept touching the children born. One was a general precept which affected all, namely that, when the days of the mother's purification were expired, a sacrifice was to be offered either for a son or for a daughter, as laid down in Leviticus 12.6. And this sacrifice was for the expiation of the sin in which the child was conceived and born and also for a certain consecration of the child, because it was then presented in the temple for the first time. Wherefore one offering was made as a holocaust, and another for sin. The other was a special precept in the law concerning the firstborn of both man and beast. For the Lord claimed for himself all the firstborn in Israel, because in order to deliver the Israelites he slew every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both men and cattle, as is related in Exodus 12, verses 12 and 13. The firstborn of Israel being saved, which law is set down in Exodus 13. Here also was Christ foreshadowed, who is the firstborn amongst many brethren, as stated in Romans 8, verse 29. Therefore, since Christ was born of a woman and was her firstborn, and since he wished to be made under the law, the evangelist Luke shows that both these precepts were fulfilled in his regard. First, as to that which concerns the firstborn, when he says, They carried him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, Every male opening the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Luke 2, verses 22 and 23. Secondly, 
as to the general precept which concerned all when he says in luke 2 verse 24 and to offer a sacrifice according as it is written in the law of the lord a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons reply to objection one as gregory of nisa says it seems that this precept of the law was fulfilled in god incarnate alone in a special manner exclusively proper to him for he alone whose conception was ineffable and whose birth was incomprehensible opened the virginal womb which had been closed to sexual union in such a way that after birth the seal of chastity remained inviolate consequently the words opening the womb imply that nothing hitherto had entered or gone forth therefrom again for a special reason it is written a male because he contracted nothing of the woman's sin and in a singular way he is called holy because he felt no contagion of earthly corruption whose birth was wondrously immaculate confer ambrose commenting on luke two twenty three reply to objection to as the son of god became man and was circumcised in the flesh not for his own sake but that he might make us to be gods through grace and that we might be circumcised in the spirit so again for our sake he was presented to the lord that we may learn to offer ourselves to god as athanasius commented on luke two twenty three and this was done after his circumcision in order to show that no one who is not circumcised from vice is worthy of divine regard as bede says commenting on the same verse reply to objection three for this very reason he wished the legal victims to be offered for him who is the true victim in order that the figure might be united to and confirmed by the reality against those who denied that in the gospel christ preached the god of the law for we must not think says origen that the good god subjected his son to the enemy's law which he himself had not given reply to objection four the law of leviticus twelve verses six and eight commanded those who could to offer for a son or a daughter a lamb and also a turtle dove or a pigeon but those who were unable to offer a lamb were commanded to offer two turtle doves or two young pigeons as bede states in a homily on the purification and so the lord who being rich became poor for our sakes that through his poverty we might be rich as is written in second corinthians eight verse nine wished the poor man's victim to be offered for him just as his birth he was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger as bede also says on the gospel of luke chapter one nevertheless these birds have a figurative sense for the turtle dove being a loquacious bird represents the preaching and confession of faith and because it is a chaste animal it signifies chastity and being a solitary animal it signifies contemplation the pigeon is a gentle and simple animal and therefore signifies gentleness and simplicity it is also a gregarious animal wherefore it signifies the act of life 
Consequently, this sacrifice signified the perfection of Christ and his members. Again, both these animals, by the plaintiveness of their song, represented the mourning of the saints in this life. But the turtle-dove, being solitary, signifies the tears of prayer, whereas the pigeon, being gregarious, signifies the public prayers of the church. As Bede states again in his homily on the purification. Lastly, two of each of these animals are offered to show that holiness should be not only in the soul, but also in the body. Fourth article. Whether it was fitting that the mother of God should go to the temple to be purified. Objection 1. It would seem that it was unfitting for the mother of God to go to the temple to be purified. For purification presupposes uncleanness. But there was no uncleanness in the Blessed Virgin as stated above in questions 27 and 28. Therefore, she should not have gone to the temple to be purified. Objection to further. It is written in Leviticus 12, If a woman, having received seed, shall bear a man-child, she shall be unclean seven days. And consequently she is forbidden to enter into the sanctuary until the days of her purification be fulfilled. But the Blessed Virgin brought forth a male child without receiving the seed of man. Therefore, she had no need to come to the temple to be purified. Objection 3 further. Purification from uncleanness is accomplished by grace alone. But the sacraments of the old law did not confer grace. Rather, indeed, did she have the very author of grace within her. Therefore, it was not fitting that the Blessed Virgin should come to the temple to be purified. On the contrary is the authority of Scripture, where it is stated in Luke 2, verse 22, that the days of Mary's purification were accomplished according to the law of Moses. I answer that, as the fullness of grace flowed from Christ unto his mother, so it was becoming that the mother should be like her son in humility. For God giveth grace to the humble, as is written in James 4, verse 6. And therefore, just as Christ, though not subject to the law, wished, nevertheless, to submit to circumcision and the other burdens of the law, in order to give an example of humility and obedience, and in order to show his approval of the law, and again, in order to take away from the Jews an excuse for calumniating him. For the same reasons he wished his mother also to fulfill the prescriptions of the law, to which, nevertheless, she was not subject. Reply to Objection 1. Although the Blessed Virgin had no uncleanness, yet she wished to fulfill the observance of purification, not because she needed it, but on account of the precept of the law. Thus the evangelist says pointedly that the days of her purification, according to the law, were accomplished, for she needed no purification in herself. Reply to Objection 2. Moses seems to have chosen his words in order to exclude uncleanness from the mother of God, 
who is with child without receiving seed. It is therefore clear that she was not bound to fulfill that precept, but fulfilled the observance of purification of her own accord, as stated above. Reply to Objection 3. The sacraments of the law did not cleanse from the uncleanness of sin which is accomplished by grace, but they foreshadowed this purification, for they cleansed by a kind of carnal purification from the uncleanness of a certain irregularity, as stated in the second part, in the Pars Prima Secundae, question 102, article 5, as well as in question 1, article 2. But the Blessed Virgin contracted neither uncleanness, and consequently did not need to be purified. End of question 37 Read by Michael Shane Craig Lambert, L.C.